This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome, movie lovers, back for another Anatomy of Movie as we dissect A Quiet Place, the new John Krasinski movie. It is quite a theatrical experience, so stay tuned as we dissect it. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. And now, here's Popcorn Talk's Anatomy of a Movie. Darn right we talk movies. You know what? If you make a sound, they will hunt you. Well, we're all in danger, aren't we? We have Marissa Serafini. Hello, everybody. Dimitri Panos. Hey, movie fans, and happy Friday the 13th. What, uh, how apropos that we should talk about this movie on Friday the 13th. Very. And I'm Phil Svitek. Thank you guys for joining us if... This is your very first time. Welcome. If you're returning, welcome back. As we normally do, we dissect the movie both in terms of plot, both in terms of production, lots to discuss there, lots of things. And we talk about, of course, the numbers and so forth. If you want to follow along with us, there is a rundown for you to download. It's a PDF, so you get to follow along. That said, just by the way I described it, it, it is spoiler-filled, so we assume that you've seen the movie. But if you don't care about spoilers, you've been warned nonetheless. Let us jump into things as we normally do with overall thoughts, starting with Marissa. Ooh, this movie. You know me. I don't do scary. Um, there were moments of scary. So much anxiety. Like, it's it's films like this is the reason why Xanax was, you know, created. <laughs> so, like, afterwards, I'm like, oh, I had to breathe. I, I was, like, one of the first people out of the theater. Um, That's funny. But, like, it was good in, in ways. There was a lot of jump scares, and uh, I was, like, preparing and bracing for those moments. And sure enough, they came. Um, silent, silent, quiet place. Yeah, all the moments of silence. I was like, ah, here it is. Um, so much anxiety. It it put me on edge. But I did like the ending. You know, strong women. I did like the ending, and I liked how it was the women who figured stuff out. So good for good for narrative's sake in that. All right, Dimitri. Look, I, I you know I had tweeted almost immediately after seeing this that this movie is a very it's a fantastic exercise in suspense. And it is an exercise in, w- in the way that this movie was approached. And I think it's very out of the box. Uh, it's, it's for, for a horror movie, we've been fortunate. Uh, where last year, around this time, we got Get Out. Uh, now we have this movie. We, we've had some really good smaller movies, smaller horror movies, step up to the plate and deliver a really good job. And... It was just the way in which this movie was executed. So big kudos to John Krasinski uh, and his and his crew uh, of of actors and all those behind the camera, front of the camera. Uh, the screenwriting uh, I thought was very uh, very well done. It was very well executed. It's very smart, all things considered, um, in the way in which it moves. It's very uh, efficient and brief. Like this movie begins and ends, and it ends at the perfect note. It ends on like a very perfect note, uh, and and it's very it ratchets up the tension as this movie uh, plows along. 
And what's what, the, the, the biggest irony that I felt this movie had is being that it is virtually, let's call it, it dialogue-free, very little dialogue. It is called A Quiet Place, yet it so rests on the sound design of this movie and editing, which really is the main focus and what lends to a lot of the terror and suspense of this movie. So where it's called a quiet place and it relies on you us or, or it relies on you being quiet or our characters being quiet it totally relies on great sound design uh mixing and editing uh so uh for that alone it, it really works it draws you in from its silence and i can tell you the theater that i saw it in was anything but a quiet place and we all would have been dead <laughs> Well, sp- speaking of, sorry, before we go, uh, speaking of sound design, just quick plug to our other popcorn talk show here on the fly filmmaking. We actually had the sound designers of this movie come in and talk about it. The whole team talked about the, the sound editing and all the different sound effects that they used and the different sound envelopes. So go check it out. Yeah. And it was done in such a way that it gave you cues where if you're paying attention, you're wondering why they're doing that. Yeah. And then you go, oh, OK, that makes OK. That makes perfect sense. Okay, I get it. I get it. So it fed you clues through its sound. And I, I just found that to be brilliant. Absolutely. What, what I appreciate, the, the, uh, it is an experience. You, you sort of get one of two things. You can either get a crowd that isn't going to respect the silence, or in my case, my audience respected the silence. And every popcorn crunch and so forth you heard, and it became all the more ominous. And what I appreciated thematically was the use of of the daughter to to be you know in this environment where your only survival sense essentially is your hearing, and if you're if that's taken away, what would that mean? And overall, the main thing that I appreciated with this movie is rather than it try to solve and kill all these creatures in the world, like some movies try to tackle and it just becomes too much too fast. It, it, they just want to live, survive, and that was it. Mm-hmm. And so very clear-cut goal, very humanistic, and um, ultimately really worked. You brought up, a, I liked what you said at, your, at the beginning when you said whether or not the audience is going to respect the fact that this movie is quiet, right? And I can tell you that the audience that I saw it with, I'm going to say a majority, many of them, did not realize how this movie was going to play out uh, through marketing. It just seemed, you know, if they hear you, they hunt you. Uh, and so I, there was a lot of, this movie was very quiet. This movie, wow, there's okay, all right. But the way this movie sets itself up, it, it introduces you, it introduces you to the rules of the world. And once the audience got that, which was in the first 10 minutes, they were in mm-hmm. totally in, so much so that because I love going to my, you know, my local theater for horror movies, man, did they try to be quiet, but there was a lot of talking and yelling at the screen. screen. And it, to me, it didn't, again, it doesn't hinder that experience. It made it that much more fun to watch this horror movie. And they were totally into it. So that by the end, when the last sound we hear is the clicking of that shotgun and that image, oh, the, my crowd just erupted into applause. It was mm-hmm. awesome. 
Absolutely. Well, before we dive into story, I want to kind of talk about the development process. Because interestingly enough, it it was viewed as somewhat of an exercise. Uh, The primary writers initially, Brian Woods and Scott Beck, they loved, in particular, silent films. And so that's kind of how it it sparked their interest to create this. And initially, uh, a movie that, for some reason, we've interjected into our conversation in the past couple of weeks, Cloverfield. <laughs> for whatever reason, I can't even remember why we keep bringing it up. But in this case, it's certainly warranted for the fact that this movie very much could have been a Cloverfield movie. Um, and to be honest, I've not seen any of the Cloverfield movies. So I want to kind of get you guys' perspective of, A, what you think that rabbit hole could have been like. I think the only reason why they kind of put it in the same Cloverfield is like tension and anxiety, silent moments, and somehow there's a monster involved. And that's like the the main bread and butter of Cloverfield because then we talked about Cloverfield 10 Lane or 10 Lane Cloverfield. Yeah, 10 whatever. Cloverfield Lane, sure. That one. And. Like, literally the last 20 minutes, you're like, okay, the first full hour and a half of the movie had nothing to do with the last 20 minutes. And the last 20 minutes was all about a monster. Spoiler alert, because we've already talked about it. Sure. Um, so it, it has the same tone and feeling um, that a, a Quiet Place did. So I, I can understand where people are making those um, comparisons. Yeah, I mean, I can sort of see it. I, you know, Cloverfield... Um you know, you watched. I'm not even going to talk about the one that was on Netflix. Well, so I'll just talk about the ones that were theatrically released, which was Cloverfield and Ten Cloverfield Lane. And when you, it's, it's. I don't know if you can pigeonhole if you can put this into that category because each of those. Well, you can't now because it's not. But I'm saying right. initially it was supposed to be. Yeah, I mean, because of the creatures being silent, being isolated. But the first two Clover, Cloverfield and Ten Cloverfield Lane play very, very differently. This could have been a very brilliant third in which this would have played extremely differently than the first two as far as thematic wise. Um, so where this movie really, really works, too, is their mastery and understanding of the silent films. You know, and and this is what I really liked about this is that it chose a medium to tell the story where through action, through acting and through the sound, as I mentioned, it propels the story forward. And to me, through that is a, a very true power of cinema in which you can do it. You can use these different mediums to tell a story. And there was a, there is a, a clear to me in this movie, a beginning, a middle, and an end, right? So, you know, you could have, I guess, adapted it to be a Cloverfield movie, uh, focusing on the family and trying to survive. Uh, But I like that they did this instead. There was nothing in the Cloverfield movies previously that said that they were uh, tuned into sound uh, as as, as the creatures here. Uh, and there is, the, you know, those creatures in Cloverfield too. They're aliens. We know that they came from somewhere. This one, to me, it really wasn't about the aliens. Like I, I didn't care where they came from. This is just the way the world is. I don't want to see a prequel to this movie either because I don't care. Well, even if it, it, one of the things appreciated down in down in the dad's basement, which we'll certainly yeah. talk about. Lots to talk about there, mm-hmm. but. He had his list of questions for the creatures, and 
at no point was where did they come from. It was just what is their weakness. Sure. And that that was the question as far as the driving force and you know when when that's what gets paid off with the shotgun certainly. Absolutely. And and let's just not forget too that those writers you were talking about they were ra- you know they were horror fans as well. So they were raised on movies like Jaws and Alien and the Hitchcock films. And many of well those examples right there are perfect examples of where there can be silence and there are sound cues that tell you something. Uh, Alien is a very claustrophobic movie and there are scenes where there are there is complete silence and when there is sound, that's what makes you uncomfortable. Um, so they really, they took their love and passion for these various movies uh, in genres as well. Because, you know, Buster Keaton is comedy. You know, so how do you make people laugh when there's no dialogue. Well, Chaplin and Keaton did it to a plum, as as well as many others. So I really enjoyed how they were able to craft this together and give us a sense of characters that we care for, you know, because that's important too in a horror movie. That's what raises the stakes. You've got to care for these people. Um, so yeah, I, I I really appreciate the fact of their love and passion for cinema. And they, they recognize the power of cinema as well. And it's right up there on the screen. Well, furthermore, they, they did grow up on a farmland in Iowa. And as far as the, the, the fact that the <laughs> I size... I know that feeling. I actually know that feeling. I grew up with the cemetery in my backyard and the cornfield on the other side. So I know pure dead silence and that it's is a true. horror environment like, if anything children of the corn was inspired by my hometown so yeah not really but i, I know that feeling well as far you know never had i viewed grain and corn as ominous and scary as it you know the fact that we have that silo scene in particular mm-hmm. and we can sort of we'll break it down into greater detail but just seeing that and the way it was utilized you know, you never look at it like, oh, okay, it's harmless. But the fact that it just essentially turns into quicksand and becomes a life and death situation. Well, also, silos are actually very dangerous. The people don't know because I grew up in agriculture land. Silos can fill up in 12 seconds and people can die literally in 12 seconds. That's how fast the grain can fall. So silos can be very dangerous if you if you don't properly know how to use them. I did not know that. Yeah, uh, I mean, true. I think the silo has been used in, in, in some features. The one that right now, in any case, for, for our conversation purposes, uh, that comes up is the scene in Witness with Harrison Ford. Mm-hmm. There's a scene, yeah. there's a really great scene uh, it's also a scene place. in an episode and, of Criminal Minds as well. They use silos. And there's there was a silo in our movie that came out with the past five years. But it's creepy in that fact that, well, I didn't know 12 seconds. 12 seconds. Jesus. That's how that's fast it can fill. Yeah. That's a lot of coin yeah, <laughs> in a true. short amount of time. But the quicksand aspect of it has, has been used in the suffocation aspect of where, mm-hmm. you know, in dying. In this movie, again... With the sound and knowing what the stakes are and how much sound is happening in that scene, you're like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, it was really well done, you know. So, yeah. Great well, use of silo. Absolutely. And what I, what I love is, you know, I, th- I think the Woods and Beck really got it to a great place. And then when John came in, he really inserted that family aspect that, that, that they sort of talked about. And what, what I appreciate as we'll sort of unravel the onion throughout this whole discussion, everyone that came on board just kept adding to it more and more, right? 
it started out with this kernel, this idea, and it was great. So no, no, no take, no disrespect there. But everything just kept servicing that vision, which is great because you know sometimes you don't get that. Sometimes things get added, yes, but they get added in spite of what the original vision was. Whereas this right. just enhanced, and I appreciated that. And everybody was on board uh, as well. Like there was an ego here. Like it wasn't like when John Krasinski comes in, it's like, oh my god, this is the way I see this movie because he was, wasn't a horror person whatsoever. In fact, he had to cram. With the help of the writers, uh, he, watched, he was watching movies like Aliens and Jaws and Hitchcock movies. So his idea was originally it really isn't a horror movie. It's a family movie. How do they survive? Uh, the other thing that I love that I think is sweet irony for, for, for much of the movie audience is that this movie was produced by Michael Bay. It's Platinum Dune, you know, and he, and he had input into this as well. Uh, and we can talk about the the, the, the Michael Bay John Krasinski relationship, but it, it it works, and and it works because I, Michael Bay had enough. Um, uh, he believes in Krasinski. He likes Krasinski, obviously, but he believes in his talent, and he nurtures it, and he wants it to continue. So. Um, you know, for all the Bay haters out there, if it wasn't for Platinum Dunes, Bay and Fuller, we wouldn't have had this movie. Or, or at least in the iteration that it is up on screen as it is today. It could have been something different and cheaper. Like, it could have been a bad horror movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I I certainly agree. Um, so let's let's start talking about the story and let's dive in into it. Um, as far as, let, let's talk about the setup of the world. Because in that sense, cinematography wise, we enter it. It's it looks like a you almost like starting on a western in a sense. You've got the the newspapers going. You've got the the dust and so forth, and it's very quiet and deliberately paced as far as each shot. Not a lot of movement, but we're just going to show you what is and kind of put you in that situation. To begin with. I think it's also important to note, I think the title card that first pops up was like 49 days. Mm-hmm. Like the first, there's something to that effect. That either said the first 49 days or it said 49 days in, but it was 49 days after whatever it was that happened. So this is the world that we now live in. And we're introduced to that, that ghost town. Yeah. Which is effectively what it was. So um, that to me was very important, and then we're then you're introduced to the stark quietness, other than the environment around, like you said, dust, there's wind, people inside this store, uh, a drugstore, and even the slight, it, and you get wrapped up in the quiet, so that when something runs by the screen, right? There was there was a lot I felt too, a lot of John Carpenter things where he'll use motion and that startles you like mm-hmm. you like you said you, you said that there were a lot of jump scares oh yeah it's so many <laughs> and and but they weren't done cheaply i felt everything was like earned and the opening really is the it's the preface it draws you in and it educates you about the world and i thought it was really well done yeah. and it's use of sound and visual and at first from <clears throat> when, when I sort of when I entered into it, I didn't know who was who as far as their relationship. So the you know when we get this idea that oh they are a family because at first oh maybe here's just a child at random that was found. She finds him. They start 
clumping together and creating their own family. But I, you, without any of that dialogue, because and we didn't even get sign language at that point. That that yeah. came later. It was just oh okay, they are a family. They are a loving unit. Yeah, and I, I like the development of we understand like kids who are normally loud are forced <laughs> to be quiet, and then like even the 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 slow reveal of the parents and helping with the medicine, and then how John Krasinski's character like was all illuminated in the doorway. It definitely um, showed the audience that these this is a good family, like these are good people, and, and just the the symbolism there. Um, but like when we to advance forward, but when we get to the bridge and the kid is making the noise, you're not expecting a child to die. You you really are you're really not. Um, and to, no. to see that like these monsters have no conscious of like adults or no morality is sake and that no one is safe even little kids who are super innocent can die from these monsters mm-hmm. you're like oh crap is that kind of movie yeah I, I to me what i really loved about the beginning uh setting it up in the drugstore and introducing us to the family then introducing us to um sign language right then you're introduced to well there there's a scene with uh, the daughter, and I, I noticed this right off the bat because it, it was a very conscious decision. When we were on the little boy, you heard the surrounding environment sound. They weren't talking. Mm-hmm. When we went to the daughter's perspective, it was literally dead silence. There was no sound whatsoever. Cut to the boy, sound, back to the daughter, zero sound at all. I'm like going, why did they choose to do this? There's got to be a reason why. There was a reason you understood for the sign language, but then it, as the movie's going on, you're like, she's got the cochlear implant thing. You're like, she's actually deaf. This family knew sign language prior to whatever event happened, and now it's coming to all of their benefits of communication, right? And you go, okay, this makes sense. They didn't learn sign language in 48, 49 days. And we can, I, I can also figure that the rest of society, unless there's somebody deaf within their family, might not know sign language either. How do they communicate? But there was a reason why they were using sign language. It wasn't just a throwaway. And they used that girl's deafness, too. It becomes a major plot point for the resolution of this movie. Well, I want to, so, you know, I, because it's such a large thing, I want to I wanna focus on little boy for one more second sure sure simply because in the the if if you follow the marketing that was a big part of the trailer was this little boy and so the fact that as soon as he got the plane and he took the batteries i i felt oh wow this is way early and because it was so early i knew what was coming but i to be honest i didn't expect that he would actually die Mm -hmm. and that's where it subverted my expectation and I, I, I was just shocked of this is not the movie I was expecting at all in the best of ways. Yeah, I think the marketing, because of the marketing, because of the trailer, I felt that he was going to save him. Yeah. You know, it's like I, he was going to save him. And it was the way that it was cut because they kept on having that little boy would appear various shots or scenes or whatever. So it was very brilliant in the marketing. And you're right. But it's what it's what a Hitchcock movie does, too. 
But also, you're not expecting a child to die. Like, you you always see the child surviving because of the parent saving the kid. Right. So when you see monsters are going after kids, too, you're like, no one is safe. Especially that early. Yeah. Yeah. Less than 10 minutes in. Five minutes into the movie. Yeah. And that, that to me, is that's the Hitchcock element of this movie. Like, that's the surprise. We don't expect it. And there's a death early on, you know, much like Psycho. We don't expect Marion Crane because the movie's been following that character to die in a shower uh, the way she did. We don't expect a a child to die and not within the first five minutes of the movie. Uh, And very shocking. And it grips you and you're going, wow, okay, (laughs) this is the world we're in. And then I believe it it cuts to it. I forget what the... Or like 400, 400, 500 days in. So yeah, they've so been it's like a, a year, year and a half later. Yeah. Um, so let's now now let's talk about Melissa, Millicent Simmons, who, who's the daughter. So she obviously she is really um, deaf, and they wanted to make that a point. And we can, we'll certainly talk about the actors and how they really got involved. But as far as that character, what I appreciate, she carries that weight of now having a, give, signed his death warrant by giving him that plane. And two, that struggle where she is herself deaf. And as I mentioned as part of my overall thoughts, the fact that her one survival thing that she needs, she doesn't have the ability to hear. And that's where a lot of the tension, what I appreciate the tension between her and the dad really came from because he was trying to be the best that he could and, and, and help them survive. And though it seemed mean, it's like... I can't bring you it's not that you're because at first i was like i don't know for whatever reason maybe i i I was just out of it i thought oh is it because you know she's a girl and he's a guy and it's like oh he's being favoritist towards the boy it's like no it has nothing to do with that it's the fact that she can't hear right and therefore she is at danger anywhere she goes another liability absolutely and because of the way that the script was crafted too the scene where he's out with his son, sound plays such an, an important part of the plotting in that it's like he was teaching his son, no, if you're, if you're by something that's louder than you, you're okay. Like, like the waterfall, which the daughter would not be able to hear. She cannot discern when something's louder or, or, or softer. She can't discern that. So you understand... Through the lesson that he was trying to teach his son, that that her impairment um, isn't isn't um, really well. It's an impairment to that lesson. So she, on her own, has to learn what else can be done. And I also love the fact that 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 the father really was working hard because not only did he know that that sound is important and hearing is important, he wanted his daughter to hear as we see in his workshop, and he was trying to work with the various hearing, hearing aids. aids and the, the cochlear implant kind of things. And, and and it was a frustration, I think, on both characters that he couldn't necessarily get one to, to, to work for her. Um, so, But in the end, it was her impairment that ended up being the strength, right? Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a brilliance uh, of the script. Um, so... Well, as far as that too, what, what, I couldn't pick up on it uh, because I'm not ALS taught. But 
what what as far as I guess you can if you really watch the the subtitling on the screen, everyone's use of sign language had a personality. When you talk about great screenwriting, the dialogue should be very you should be able to pick out just by dialogue. Oh, that's this character. That's this character. And as you know, the dad very short to the point because it was all about survival. He didn't have time to say no. I need you to do this because of this. Uh, Evelyn, the mother. Played by Emily, hers was a little bit more nurturing. Like if if we're gonna have to sign, right. it doesn't mean that there can't be love in what I sign. Right. And so definitely nurturing. Two completely different perspectives, not perspectives, but you you saw the necessity and what they were going for. So I appreciate that level of depth into it. Oh, I agree. And even with uh, Millicent and you know the younger, like we had. Noah. Marcus and and Reagan, like the, the those two kids, they um, like Milson's character, Reagan, like she was very angry a lot, and you can tell that she couldn't like properly convey her emotions as someone who can could speak could properly communicate, and so you know she was always saying no, no, she was very short and and upset, and, and even in the body language, you can tell she she was angry and kind of defiant in some ways. But in when you get Noah Jupe who played Marcus, you know, right. very scared, like consistently scared throughout, and right. I don't blame him either. Um, so e- even with the the children's um, personalities, you can definitely tell their their um, their emotions. Yeah, I, it, Marissa, you're right on the right on point because yes, their sign language, much like our voices, are part of our personality. Their signing was their personality, and and it and it and it mirrored that. Um, it showcased that, I should say, and. Again, it, in the way that it, in which it was filmed, and someone who isn't, who doesn't know much about that that language, let's say, um, I'm glad that they brought they brought a new dimension to it. So, uh, in hopes that audiences can come away the way that we just came away, going, yeah, they each had a their personalities came through their emotions. Their emotions came through their signing. Um, so I, it's and again, it's just brilliant use of that uh, throughout the entire movie, and that's how you get hooked in. I think. Well, truthfully, I the Irish, you know, no disrespect, I I couldn't tell the difference of them through signing, but no different than actual spoken language. You only discern what let's what do they say ten to twenty percent out of the spoken word versus gestures right and so it's a huge testament when, when you call it an exercise the fact that as far as they're acting i got it through the use of their gestures and everything else and in fact one of the things i really appreciated was those moments that we saw them as a family she's cooking um the daughter's helping uh, you know the the dad lee he he's very regimented as far as that like he he wants them to have fun but he can't participate in it because he's got his duties um the the little boy marcus he's still trying to figure out like at the end of the day he's still trying to just be a kid and, and the fact that they play monopoly and have that ability to play monopoly i thought it was a wonderful scene because it shows the connection and the bond of that they can still have fun and yet the danger that that fun still represents when he knocks right. over the lantern. But just going back to uh, where, where, it's, where, where it showed emotion, right? When you looked at John Krasinski, his sign language was very deliberate throughout. Like, mm-hmm. it, he was fastidious about it. 
Um, nurturing Emily Blunt, the mother, the wife, her, the way in which she would do it was had that loving nurturing. Uh, Marcus, the boy, right? His was very quick and scared. Like, no, 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 no. And he had a different type where the girl, hers was defiant. Hers was always had a punch. Hers was defiant. Like, you're not listening to me. Um, you know, and that's where I felt when, when you watch this movie that their personalities did come through their signing gestures a lot. And that's, uh, again, it, it really, how do you build character in people who aren't really talking throughout a movie? Because they can't. So you, you got to throw a lot out the window to restart again. It, it just forces you to use what you have and um, what I appreciate is it was actually uh, Millicent who, who brought up the idea to be more rebellious rather than quiet as initially in the script it was right. and what I appreciated um, I had I, I, I was privileged enough like they, they had a little behind the scenes five minute documentary let's say about the making of this movie and the fact that John was very adamant like bring ideas to me and even even down to noah you know you could think like oh okay well they're just kids what, what can they bring to it but obviously they care about their characters and very much so he was able to incorporate that and i thought that was a good switch additionally the one time we really get uh lee's character to be as emotional as he is it was millicent who told him hey instead of saying i i love you just say i've always loved you and that's a that was a very astute, astute. And as far as an audience, I I remember I could look around and because everyone was so quiet, tears just you you could hear the tears because of how quiet the theater was. Yeah. I think it was a good dramatic moment that was definitely earned too, just in script narrative wise. Because when even even the son convinced the father, be like, you know, what, you you should also reassure her that you love her. Right. And like even this little kid who who's wise enough to know that his sister doesn't feel as loved as he is, um, in that and that and like even the moment when both the the two kids are on top of the silo before they fall into it, right? Um, you can tell that uh, Reagan was like still really upset with the father, and there was some favoritism. Or she believed that there was favoritism, and she's like. Uh, no, he'll come for you. He won't come for me. And I, I think that's really sad. Uh, yeah. And then to have the dramatic moment of the father reassuring her that, no, he's not bitter against her because she's the reason, or she could be the reason why they lost the son. Yeah. I, I think it was a nice dramatic moment to kind of conclude that storyline. Uh, I agree. It and it dramatic. comes full circle. Like when she finally, cause she's wanted to go into that house, she's wanted to go into that basement. And when she finally gets there and sees what he's been working on, it all hits her right in the face. E even beyond just having to, ha like, it it's one thing to having heard or seen the the words from him, seeing what he's done there, just takes it to a whole nother level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and also her sad realization that he's been working on all these hearing aids for mm -hmm. her. She didn't know that, no. so like, and. It's not like she got the proper goodbye either to thank him huh. for that. Right. So I, I, I fell for her. And again, that, that, that is an aspect of horror that sometimes uh, certain horror makers forget about. You need to have characters that, are, that you're drawn into, that you actually care for and that you want 
to make it to the end of that journey, right? You don't want them to be throwaway. You don't. They. You don't want them to be just red shirts, so that if if, if somebody, heaven forbid, is to die in one of these movies, you should have kind of like, oh shit, damn it. You know, there's there's a feeling. That's what, again, really for me, uh, makes a. It's a piece of that puzzle that makes a really good horror movie. It so. was very sad. Thematically, I understood it. As soon as like the the whole taking him the Mar- uh, Marcus to the waterfalls and so forth, that completed in essence his training. And then <laughs> with the final act of I I I always loved you. It like story wise, it completed his entire journey and his life's work was complete at this point. That's they awesome. he set them up to survive, right? And mm-hmm. he did what he could. Doesn't make it any less. Uh, <laughs> You know, tear more of a less of a no. tearjerker, but yeah, it's like, I, and I didn't. You don't again. You don't. You, you didn't expect it. You know, mm-hmm. if anything, you expect the adult to make it through. Um, but it was. But it wasn't just the fact that he died. It was. It was self sacrifice so that they could go on, and that's. And there was a cue earlier on in the movie where they came across that house where the old man was over his wife, and that man screams right. Ugh. So that was so the you know so we're we're tying that in, but there are so many other plot points and script things. Like the one thing I guess that for me, if I'm gonna to nitpick for 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 a second, is why wouldn't you just take the batteries and put them in your pocket? Like take that take that element away and give the kid the toy because mm-hmm. it's not gonna make a sound <laughs> without the batteries, right? So here's the toy, take the batteries out, they go in the pocket, I can use, use them for something in the basement. Because everything else was so thought out uh, when you think about the script and the screenplay and the acting. Because then my next thing is, why the hell would you have a baby in this environment? Having a baby is the loudest freaking thing that you can do. But then when you, the fireworks, oh, okay. So they had everything thought out like the fireworks were meant to be a distraction when she was having the baby oh okay i get it they were they did think things through as far as that goes and i found that to be actually brilliant because why would you have a baby well i I think also and i didn't really think of like why would i think anyone is asking that question but it follows the fact that they just lost a child so it makes sense that the family would maybe try again to have another one yeah during this environment where they can't make noise maybe not the smartest thing but it happens i was actually okay with that but you you said your nitpick was that take away the batteries i think also er, it's early in the narrative where they're still getting used to remembering not to make noise maybe just didn't really think about the batteries because this the father already told the son you can't have the toys and like that was that okay that's fair yeah and I, i i agree with marissa on both points and to add to your former point, as far as the, the kid, I as far as the, the, the number one criticism is this. Why would you bring a child into this, this right? And let alone, for, forget the fact of it making noise, but also, like, this is just a horrible environment. But I think that's part of the thematic point of this movie is that just because there's struggles in life and, you know, this being the ultimate one, the... There's aliens all over the place, and they're ready to kill you at, at the first sound. Why why should we let that deter us? Mm-hmm. And I understand, and you can go with that. But at the same time, it's not just the baby making sounds. 
I've seen a lot of movies. I've never witnessed an actual birth, okay? But it's not a quiet event. It, I mean, the, the, the actual event of the birth is not a quiet event. Well, even the raising up right. until like five years old, but let's the raising, say. When, but that's a very loud event. So it's like, what are they? What, what were they thinking? And so then you go. As Maybe the they weren't goes expecting along, another kid. It, it's, it, again, it's. It, to me, I'm, I'm, what I'm pointing out is the strength of the screenplay. Because had they not shot off those fireworks, the fireworks were meant as a distraction. So that when she was having the baby, the monsters would be you know that. a while away. But you didn't see this fireworks. You didn't know that they had the fireworks when you learned that Emily Blunt was pregnant. So I'd be like, what are you doing? And then when you see the various contingencies, like the, 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 the little crib... The art I will not ever the, call that a crib. Well, that is a yeah, that was, coffin crib. Was, well, I, 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 no, I know. I get I what you're saying. What else to call it. I, but I, I've I, never. I know. But you see, they did plan for the baby. They did. And that, to me, is the strength of the screenplay of this movie. Because they had their contingencies and their planning for, for bringing a child into the world, which is literally one of the loudest things that you can do when you need to be quiet. Yeah. I was I, the reason I point that out as far as the uh, coffin. the coffin is simply because I've when you talk about the horrors of this movie I've never seen something more horrific and yet it worked I was like oh oh my god yeah yeah and I get it it's it's a it's a very protective and loving aspect to the movie nonetheless this is how we have to survive and keep this baby alive. I felt bad for the coffin. baby. I, yeah. I literally had this conscious. I was like, man, what is this world that the baby's being born into? It's yeah. terrible. It's terrible. How is the baby going to survive? Mm-hmm. Uh, I do want to talk about Emily Blunt. You know, at first, what, what I appreciated when, when John got the script, he liked it and so forth, and he started working on it. Um, he He was reserved in asking Emily to do it because he didn't want her to do it just because of him and so forth. And she got her hands on it and read it. She's like, I have to do this. There's no one else who can do this role but me. And I appreciate that because it wasn't, it, in that sense, it was truly the best actors for the job. And the best actors for the job happened to be the married couple of John and Evelyn. I mean, or John I, and Emily. I love Emily Blunt. You, you know this. Anyone who's listened to me in the past anatomies that cover Emily, I love her. She's amazing, and it's it's beyond me how she hasn't had an, an Academy Award yet. So I, I think she was perfect. And she also, uh, John Krasinski also said in an interview that it was Emily who was actually like convincing, like you know what, John. I'm really the only one. So it's like, and I like how she wanted to be involved, not just because it was her husband, but because she thought it was a good acting role. And all of her, all the major anxiety scenes were with her, with the whole, you know, uh, all all the monsters, the baby, the birth, the... the Don't bring up the nail. The nail. You did. did. (laughs) The nail. But like she, and but even when she when she wakes up and the whole place is flooded and she has to grab the baby and but she sees the monster and goes slowly into the water. I was like, oh no, get out of the water. Mm -hmm. And she had all the best moments. And even at the end, the film ended on her. She had the best moments in, in this movie, and I think she sold it brilliantly. Yeah, she was great, and and it's interesting too because it was about uh, this is interesting story. I found it interesting, anyways. That about a week before shooting, Krasinski was uh, he was looking for edit bays, 
And he happened to bump into Rob Marshall, who directed uh, Mary Poppins, which Emily Blunt is in. Mm-hmm. And uh, Rob Marshall was just, they were just talking, and he asked him, hey, when are you about to shoot? And he's like, next week. He goes, oh. Rob Marshall was like, that's so great. You'll see. And Krasinski's like, I know. I love her so much. I'm her biggest fan. And, 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 and Rob Marshall was like, no. Not until you're in the room when, and see what she does will you know why she's such a good actress. And especially working in an edit bay and seeing what she gives. Uh, and the first scene I believe they shot was the bathtub scene. And right there, because they, they hadn't worked together in that fashion before. And it was nervous for, for the both of them. Um, but I felt, as far as on-screen couples go, and as far as one of those, that, that couple being a director... I thought they worked. I thought it was very natural. Um, it didn't seem to be thrown together because they're a couple, and they made it work. And both of them were, were were fantastic. And Emily Blunt, I think that character was 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 purposely given the best scenes. And you needed an actress to be able to pull it off. And I think their comfort level, and then John realizing, God, she really is fantastic to work with as a collaborator. Um, and she does. She she really does uh, come off the screen wonderfully. She she's great, and she commands every scene that she's in. Um, so, and he does too in his way. But you're right. She, he's out of the picture like a lot when he's off with his son, right? So a lot of the movie does fall on her shoulders, and it works. She's great. Fantastic. Well, I mean, his character's not going to be the emotional one, right? The, the whole point of that earned scene at the end is because he's been so emotionless throughout the entire movie. <laughs> right. So it, it hinges on that. It, it, that's why it works so well. And she's the complete opposite. She has to, um, she has to make up for that entire point of it. And, right. and, right. and, that and in a way, she does. Her character does have a weakness too. She's pregnant. Mm-hmm. So, like, that hinders her and, and kind of impairs her in emotion and movement and how much she can actually help herself for survival. So, and I think that just adds another layer to her that we're caring more about her because she's more pregnant. She's caring. Um, so, it, it, there's just, like, another level of anxiety for her. Yeah, and think about how this movie ratchets up the tension, right? Yeah, Yes, she's caring. She's pregnant. Yes, she... You know, so she's about to go through this painful ordeal, this painful loud ordeal, and then she steps on a nail, <laughs> which is another, <laughs> another uh, very loud, play. inducing. It's like, and it was so foreshadowed. Oh yeah, like you're like going, oh, like, that's gonna come back. Oh, absolutely. You cringe right when it was oh. in that initial moment. Yeah, Oof. well, before she started walking back down the stairs, you're like going, oh no, <laughs> and. And then and then her water breaks. So now we're ratcheted up even more. I'm limping. I'm bleeding. I'm in so much pain. And and my husband is way off on walkabout. And she had to do everything on her own and then protect her daughter. And then you had this monster coming in the house. It's it is it is the perfect way in which a horror movie gets ratcheted up and you and you do that build that build and build. But I think also the. Not just the building of the sound, but just the cinematography, the use of red. 
Mm-hmm. We had the use of blood from her, which was awful. Her switching the light bulbs to red, so mm-hmm. you know there's danger. Um, within a dark environment, Just visually it also matched the anxiety that you hear. So I think it was a lot of things building together mm-hmm. that um, really helped to make it suspenseful. Yeah. Indeed. Uh, let's talk about the monsters because I think they're interesting enough as far as just the way they looked, right? They're, they're sort of humanoid and whatnot. Uh, one Insectoid, of the f- yeah. One of the fun aspects is that uh, John Krasinski actually did a lot of the motion capture <laughs> for those <laughs> creatures. So I thought, I thought that was uh, that's a fun little tidbit. But nonetheless, they were very conscious of how these things... Why do they need to see? They can hear. They're sort of evolved. They have that higher sense of, of, of hearing. And I thought that played very well as far as visual every time. Every time we did see him, we got a little bit more and more, A, from a visual perspective, but then also a deeper insight into how this thing worked. Right. And I, and I appreciate that. Up in, in Man, uh, you know, we can certainly talk about it from the sound design perspective, but when your biggest means of survival is just feedback and the way that all played into itself, the way it was revealed story-wise, the way it was shot, the way it was um, executed in terms of its mix, uh, I, I thought that worked really well. You know, and that culmination of, of just complete hatred on the part of the monster oh. hearing this noise. Right, and I think it was really smart, though, because it, it used its greatest strength against them in that way too and frequency like fight fire with fire essentially sure and it's actually as simple as it is so brilliant yeah like, why didn't we think of higher pitch sounds in the first place yeah i mean it made me think like if i was there learning this i'd rush to any pet go and get dog whistles <laughs> um you know but it, 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 to your point yeah it's greatest strength turned into its greatest weakness and I like how they foreshadowed that again about midway through the movie <clears throat> when her uh, hearing aid goes fritzy. She doesn't understand <laughs> what it's doing. She, does, she doesn't see what's, what's going on. She doesn't um, hear what's going yeah, on. Yeah, she doesn't hear what's going on. But we see the creature writhing and then it takes off. And you're like, oh, okay. How is this going to be incorporated? Because we as an audience understand We've just been fed information that our character on screen has no idea about. And the payoff at the end works so well uh, that when she puts it up to the microphone, you know, it's it's great. The other thing that's very smart in this movie is in that basement, we have pretty much all the information we as an audience need to know about the creatures. Okay, there are at least three in that area. Okay, they are heavily armored. We know that they can hear. We know what their strengths are, but it said don't finding it's we need to know its weaknesses. So right there, and it's nothing this is an exposition that is done in dialogue as it normally would be in a movie. You know, this is just written down. So it was very purposeful that the direction takes our attention to the sheet of paper, not once, but a good handful of times. We see that sheet of paper about the aliens. So Again, it's it's a great different way of giving us exposition about what we have to do and what they're up against, and, and even how many. We're not looking at an army um, of it, but the three are very formidable. Um, three is a company. Three. 
<laughs> that's funny. Um, so I found that that I, I found that to be a good way of letting us know. Okay, so they have to combat at least three, and then finding their weakness. And I like how they came to the realization of what the weakness is. It's mom. It's mother and daughter. Mm-hmm. In a sense, working that out. So and, and just that fact alone, you, you know. Just to really hammer in the, the thematically, for her, her greatest weakness became her greatest strength. The creature, its greatest strength became its greatest weakness. Mm-hmm. That thematically, the fact that that fits in so mm-hmm. yin and yang, it, 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 just a testament to everyone's credit. Because I, I don't know who ultimately came right. up with that theme, uh, but it, but it works so so well. Um, any other stories? Elements you guys want to talk about before we shift gears more into the production aspect of things? Well, I mean, you know, there was also, there's been a lot of talk, too, about how this fits into today's world. Okay, yeah. From it, um, you know, into the, let's let's call it the politic, regarding the politics. And I found that to be very interesting, too, because I always do feel that horror movies are a reflection Um of what's happening in the world. They, they, they come out and they bring this, this sort of, it's almost like science fiction in the human condition where, where horror movies use what's happening, uh, going on and what's, what's quiet while people are forced to be quiet because of creatures out. And you can make them, you can make the analogy and or the metaphor in today's current politics, so to speak. And even though John Krasinski didn't mean it for that, he and Emily Blunt actually really started to praise that thinking and really were on board for that. And to me, that is also a sign of of good horror movie when you are able to, in a sense, if you want to dig into it, right, you can see that, it, it, how relevant it is. That's, I think, part of the, one of the strengths of Get Out. But I can even look to things like Halloween, um, so to more classic horror movies, how it is a reflection of that time and into today. Um, that's what makes classic horror. So even though he may not have thought of it, I like that it ends up being a nice residual mm-hmm. from making this movie. Because it does, if you want to break it down, you can think of it in that means of being suppressed, of being quiet. About saving oneself. Like, what does it mean to be quiet? And what happens if I speak up? Like, there's a fear sometimes of speaking up because you'll get in trouble for doing so. So, to me, uh, that is another notch that makes this a very good, such a good horror movie. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, the other aspect that it makes it great is the fact, location-wise, there's not a lot of locations. Uh, which works well for a production standpoint. You don't have to. You just have to scout the best locations so they fit. But even I thought we would never even return to that bridge, but we do. I, you know, I thought for some reason maybe they traveled a long distance, and you know that's in the past. Especially mentally, you might I could see you want to get away from it, and the fact that it's all sort of the landscape within itself. I don't know the radius per se, but certainly within walking distance. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, th- I thought that worked really well um, as far as production was concerned. I think a lot of good scary movies usually take place in one or two locations. I mean, Psycho was, we only had like one main location with it, with the mansion. And, and like this place, 
did a good job of building just the environment that they were in in their house that um and the different like the different parts of the farm that you had to go place to place to place and like what um what they built in within those environments i think was really smart and but it's big enough to be very spacious that a lot of things can happen in transit on the way to each location and which is actually very true to a farm yeah, well, and, and you would true. know. And, I and, would know. And I think, too, though, that the geography is very important um, in a movie because we have a sense. We have a sense of where things are and where they fit into place. We have a sense of where that bridge is. Obviously, everything is in walking distance. You're not going to want to, you know, drive a Suzuki uh, in that world. Uh, so... Everything has to sort of kind of be in walking distance, right? So we know where the bridge is. Then when the world expands, we sort of have an idea where the waterfall is, where the farm and the silo is. And then when you're up top of the silo, I thought that was brilliant too because we get to see the landscape. So we know the house. And we also know that there is also a visual language because they were able to see the other houses who would light the fire or the pyres and they could see who's still alive mm-hmm. and they could send a signal out. So I thought that that from a visual standpoint, number one, it, it, it gives us a great geography that the house is the center and what's all around the, this house and far and how far out is it? Obviously it couldn't be much more than three to five miles out that they had to get to. But we we got a good sense of the landscape, and I think too that came from the direction and editing and how that came together. Well, from a visual standpoint, they they were very deliberate in the fact that it wasn't going to be. Oftentimes, horror movies now rely on the shaky cam and mm-hmm. kind of fast, too fast. When I talked about the pacing of the opening scene, that set us up. Yes, it's an editing technique, but nonetheless, the shot itself is very steady. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the shots that follow are equally steady and very deliberate. There's a lot of, you know, you get a lot of dolly shots, and but it's, it's, it's not shaky whatsoever. There's no movement as far as that's concerned. Uh, so, so I found it very deliberate in that sense. And even just the use of, when you talk about the intimacy of everything... Well, you're going to want to get close up onto the family, which is what they do oftentimes. Is right. they they get very intimate, and you know, yeah, the, the monopoly scene, right? We get very cranial with the dice being rolled. <laughs> you know, Absolutely. whereas like you could see, look at that as like, oh, it's just the throwaway. No, but but if we're gonna if we're gonna really focus on what makes sound and what doesn't, let's let's see it in its full capacity. Yeah, and even the the sound editors that we had in for this movie, they they talked about that they actually demanded a lot more close-ups when it came to the editing because they had to work in tandem with the editors. And so they would ask the editors to, like, take some scenes and actually make them longer, make shots longer so they had enough time to build up a music or a sound cue that would actually be long enough just in real time to build up anxiety, to build this sound envelope. When we got close-ups of Milson's ear, it, it gave the audience enough time to be like, oh, this is what she hears, which is or what she basically, or it's like no. a small hum, or like it's basically nothing. Um, so like they actually asked for a lot of close-ups on people, so you get a sense of what they heard in their environment. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. And and you had brought up uh, cinematography. So there's Charlotte Bruce Christensen, uh, who worked with Emily Blunt on Girl on the Train. Um, but she also did this movie, Fences. Beautiful film. Um, yeah, not a very good one, but a beautiful film. But, but this movie shot. was very, as you said, it was very deliberately shot. And I think much to Krasinski's credit, and he does give his crew credit. Like he says, oh, my God, I was working with... I worked with a great crew. I had people who who had experience, far more experience than I did in directing a, a horror movie. So um, she did a wonderful job. And, and to your point, too, that like the use of uh, switching the lights, switching those old bar lights to the hue that they give off to the red and the redness that was given. Yes, you know, red is danger. Shooting in an, in an outdoor environment like that, too. Um, using the elements and the lighting, coupled with your sound design, um, she she does a fantastic job as a cinematographer in capturing fear, faces, environment. You got again that sense of geography, um, and you're right. There was no shaky cam. This was not a first person, no. you know, perspective. Uh, and <laughs> I, I really think that, too, that she brought to John Krasinski this great talent that he was able to mine um, to make, again, greatness out of a, a horror movie, which sometimes you don't um, expect. And we've talked about it. Annabelle Creation used great cinematography. I always talk about Dean Cundy's work and like Halloween um, cinematography uh, adds to a horror movie. Alfred Hitchcock used cinematography and editing to, to mount his suspense. Um, so it's extremely important. I think she's an extremely important cinematographer um, who's just been doing some fantastic work. Yeah. So uh, I want to see a lot more of her work uh, and who she works. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I can't wait to see more of her work. And, uh, and, and I like that because I've never... As far as collaboration, yes, we, we always highlight the collaboration, but uh, to my knowledge, this is the first time that the sound editors are dictating edits. <laughs> I mean, generally, you know, you, you go through the editing process, you make sure it works, and then, you know, you throw it there, it, it gets foleyed, it gets mixed, it gets all that, but the, the visual dictates what's put in as far as sound, uh, so, so I appreciate that. The other aspect of it... Um, you know, when you talk about sound, there's there's the music component. And what I appreciate, they were very deliberate when and how they used the music. Because they didn't, they, they, they had this feeling that if we don't put in music and we just solely rely on sound effects and, and, and all that, it's not going to feel like a film. And yet, the music that, I, I to be honest, I don't quite remember the music. It was very subdued. I, in, in a way, when we talk about music enhancing what's there... Oftentimes, I feel like it's visual first, music second, sound effects third. Right. But I think this time, music and sound effects were completely switched, where the sound effects were what was required first and foremost, then let the music build onto the sound effects. Yeah, and Marco Beltrami's no stranger. He's a, he's 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 had some work. He's done some. Uh, he's had some good projects, but. Uh, you know, he goes on record like he didn't even have a budget to have a full orchestra in this movie. And, and he 
goes on. I didn't need it because the film's truly so intimate and contained. Um, and basically, he was relying on strings and a piano. And he actually detuned the piano's black keys to make it a little askew. And he came up with the monster sound and, he, and how he took strings and drums processes to become electronic. So he was even creating sounds for, for, for <laughs> the monsters. Um, and, and, you know, so he had double duty as well. So, uh, you know, it, and if you look at it, too, as not a horror movie but a family drama, which you can. You can make the argument, right? The sound or the music too relates to that bed as well. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that we always talk about too. Sometimes when you have a less of a less of a budget to work with, you can become more imaginative and creative. And, That's the entire production theme of this movie. Is like the less they had, the more <clears throat> they got creative. Yeah, and they use silence like very well in right. this film. And uh, Brandon Jones, who who is also one of the sound designers, he said that for the, the noise, they did a lot of Foley noise, um, re-recording of Foley noise for the, for the movie, but also the noise for the baby was actually his real-life nef- newborn nephew mm-hmm. that he recorded a bunch of noise when he went to go play with his his newborn nephew, and so that's all of a, a real baby being yeah. recorded. I can imagine the don't, mother being like, don't shut mind that my kid up. No, 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 <laughs> no, no, no. Ten keep more going, minutes. keep going. <laughs> don't mind my microphone. Um, yeah. Well, I like, because they sort of, uh, like the sound team, uh, Eric uh, Adal and Eric Ethan Adal. Van uh, Duren, Duren, I believe that would be. Van Duren, Van yeah, Duren. they were just here Monday. So um, they created something they called Sonic Envelopes, mm-hmm. Um and particularly from the point of the view of the daughter who's deaf, and by harnessing her inability to hear sounds could be removed during visually intense moments, like this scene at the drugstore. And again, that was a cue that to me came through so like it was so on purpose. Cause I was like, why are why is it dead quiet here? And I just noticed the difference. It's like we're dead quiet here, environmental sound here. And again, this sonic envelope uh, going into her perspective sonically allows the audience to hear what she's experienced at the same time to see what's lurking behind her. So again, when the monster's behind her and the coin, yeah, I mean, so as I said in in, in my in, in my mini review, that the sound design is equally as important, if not a character, to this movie. Uh, I'd be curious. So true. Something that just came to be. I'd be curious for those of you listening or watching. Leave us a comment, tweet us, whatever, however you prefer. But let us know if if you live in the middle of nowhere. If this movie was any scarier for you, sim- by that simple fact that you went home and it was just so damn quiet. <laughs> this <laughs> is literally my home in Illinois. But it's <laughs> not your home like, here, so no, you at least no, got to go like, home to loud dogs, I, cars. I know what this sounds like. I know dead silence. I have a cemetery in my backyard. So when you go back home, might this bring it's great. up I memories love of silence. this movie? No, because I don't have monsters trying to kill me. <laughs> that you know <laughs> of. That you know of. So, but, but talking about the sound, too, Veneran said, you know, and I find this very interesting, that they discovered the telling telling the creature's uh, perspective. And, and again, when you think about it, it makes 100% sense. It needed to be clear for the audience. 
And again, this is where cinema educates an audience by not beating them over the head, but it's by visual and sound cues and not like exposition. So when Emily Blunt's character sets an egg timer in order to create a distraction, we needed to show the creature's ear first. And then you go to the egg timer. And again, that sets us up. And I loved how they made the um, the creature's ear was sort of kind of like a camera lens. It had that because it would... It always had that iris where iris. it would open, and it and and it got it was really quiet. It opened up as wide as it could to let in sound instead of light. Um, I really found from a character, from a creature building perspective, I found that to be uh, extremely fascinating. See, I thought it was cool to look at, but like as a viewer, I was like, "Oh, that's its weakness. Just shoot a bullet and right into the ear, and boom, it can't <laughs> hear you anymore," because it it was just flesh flesh and skin and all that mm-hmm. so i was like that that uh, that could be its soft weak spot. it would be hard to shoot into the air where everything else is well, it's is, right uh, there on the side of the head it's mostly the head when that it's thing's more of an you ear down. than a head <laughs> i think i'm gonna write a survival book based on every horror movie <laughs> but i, I just <laughs> try this i think it's easier to shoot it when it's down because it's writhing and right hey other writhing than if pain. it's chasing you um, you'd really have to be a good shot. But and also it's what, fast, too. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say, also what makes the this creature scary is its motion. Like, it can cross a whole field in a couple of seconds. Yeah. It's like, it moves so fast. And the way it crawled slowly kind of reminded me of a spider. The spiders are scary <laughs> as all hell, like. too. So, oh, <laughs> it was just, like, a lot of different qualities that make it scary. Yeah. Absolutely. All right, let's shift gears and talk about the promotion side of this. I talked about a little bit of the trailer, but uh, one of the interesting parts you you mentioned earlier, Get Out, that came around this time. Um, Interestingly enough, at first, not a lot of love for the trailer initially, but then it got uh, through social media, and when when it hit South by Southwest, the trailer got over 52 million views, uh, which was, let's say... um, Seven million uh, higher than Get Out in 2017. That had about f- uh, 46 million. Yeah. So interesting. And I know you know uh, one of the inter- one of the things that I've learned as we continue Anatomy and Movie is the correlation between the trailer views and translation at the box office. Yeah, right. I find it more well, and more interesting. It, it, it can be a correlation. It's uh, but, but here's the thing: there was a huge um, amount of buzz. Like I was in on the trailer because I, I just really liked the concept and like the people involved in, in the creation and who are in the movie. And I thought it was a really well cut trailer. Coming into South by Southwest, it got such amazing uh, buzz after its screening, and it wasn't just. The Hollywood machine buzz. This was people actually talking about this movie, saying how great it was. And it instantly came on to Rotten Tomatoes. And for the longest time, it was a it was 100%, right? So true story, I, I had, it was about a week, two weeks after South by Southwest. I, I, was, I had a meeting with some studio folk, uh, not going to name their names or the studio, but talking about this movie, I said, you know, I think this movie is going to do like really well. And they looked at me like I had three heads. And I'm like, going, no. I mean, number one, it's a horror movie. There hasn't been this year, as of yet, a solid horror movie. This seems to take that slot of get out. The buzz has been incredible. That's what I'm seeing and hearing as a horror fan. I'm reading all this great thing. Rotten Tomatoes, 100%. 
you're ratcheting it up the tension. You've got people like Krasinski out there peddling. You're like, he's doing what he needs to do. Emily Blunt. I go, this movie's going to surprise. And again, they're like, well, geez, we hope so. You know, we're looking for breakout hits and, and such. So, yeah, to me, the marketing of this movie and what South by Southwest did for it really helped propel this. Now, could anybody have predicted 50? I mean, 50 million for an opening weekend. That's that's amazing for this movie, considering its budget. And horrors usually really do well. They like, do. They're I mean, even easy. shitty ones. Yeah, they, they do. I'm like, sure. Paranormal. How do you think Paranormal got so big? I mean, that was like one of the, the cheapest movies that made the most money. Yeah. And then they made more movies. So, like, horror does well. It does. Um, regardless, again, of how good it is. I mean, just look at what it did. I mean, it was huge, okay? And it, it has stayed in theaters forever. Mm-hmm. Um, Get Out was getting uh, Academy Award nominations, okay? Horror does really well. Lionsgate learned that in its infancy. Like, it can make cheap horror, make it good. People will go if you market it really well. And when you're talking about a production budget of $17 million, right? And then you're looking at... Uh, Maybe sixty million all in if if Paramount, um, you know, pumped in that much money to it. But again, for Paramount, this movie is huge. This is the movie they needed. I mean, this is this this Mr. Giannopoulos can put his stamp and say, "This is the beginning of our coming out party." Like this is our revamped Paramount. They needed. They needed this movie. Above and beyond what Mission Impossible is going to do. Oh, this is going to be awesome. Right. I, I, oh, I agree. But I'm just saying Mission Impossible is their franchise that will mm-hmm. do well. They needed to come out with something original and, and new and different. Yeah. This movie is it. This is, their new, this is the new Paramount going forward. Yeah. And as far as international, what's great about it is that it's the fact that it's so <laughs> visual and so sound heavy it's it's it'll play well i feel like across multiple places and they may not have that they may not they'll enjoy the silence aspect of of the film but i think that our audience is here i think that they totally got into it there isn't much there isn't anybody that i heard that said "Ugh, the movie was like a silent movie Ugh, i haven't heard much of that no uh, i've heard it's a very good movie that's what i've heard too all right, 96% so. on Rotten Tomatoes, I believe. Yes. Right? B which is, plus on Cinema Score. Which so. I was expecting an A minus, to be honest, but okay. The B plus are those people who didn't expect it to be so quote unquote quiet <laughs> with very little dialogue. That is what it is. 89 million worldwide thus far. That's, I mean, when you're talking about a movie that cost. Seventeen million dollars, you know, and these are the movies that I would always point to as being like this is a B movie because of its budget in a sense, right? And but we've talked about movies like Pacific Rim Uprising is like a B movie, but that movie had close to two hundred million dollars of production budget. This is seventeen million dollars. The profit that they're going to have in the weeks to come, then on home entertainment and streaming, yeah. So. All right. Final thoughts before we wrap this up. Marissa? Oh, well, it was enjoyable. <laughs> I don't do scary, but eventually I have to force myself to go see scary movies. It was fun in that way. Hmm. Exa- like, man, I had to take a sleeping pill after this. Did movie you really? I did. <laughs> it's like, 
so much anxiety and I did not like that. But it was it was done very well and I'll you give them that. You just gotta see scary movies in the morning on like a weekend. Yeah, no. Be I don't right, wanna start my day off on a scary yeah, movie. Right You'll be better off for it. You'll fall asleep by the end. Well, I appreciate that that Michael Bay saw something in Krasinski when they did 13 Hours. Uh, he's now since worked with him in this movie. Uh, Platinum Dunes also uh, uh, has the Jack Ryan uh, series that's going to be, I believe, on Amazon. Yes. So I think, and they've already signed Krasinski to do a science fiction movie. Like, that's going to be his next directing project. So I think that, that, that Krasinski, in a sense, or Bay is his muse. And, and I really love that because that's nurturing talent. Not just acting, but that's taking somebody who wants to do more and saying, hey, I see something in you. You're a really strong worker. I enjoyed the collaboration we had on this. Here's a project for you to do. And now I'm going to put you in this. And now you're directing something else. I think that's... This is how you. I, this is how we. The positive way to envision this industry and working, you know. So uh, I'm glad all these collaborations. I'm glad all of these pieces of the puzzle came together to collaborate to bring us this movie. And it really is a true great cinematic experience. Absolutely. There you have it, folks. That's our dissection for today. Uh, thank you guys for joining us. I know we weren't that quiet, but hopefully. <laughs> You guys enjoyed it. Uh, do okay. leave us a comment. Let us know what you thought of the movie. We always appreciate your comments, and we love reading them, talking about them, and so forth. So thank you guys. As always, we as will always. be doing Blockers, a quick review of that a little bit later today. And next week, we will be we will do Isle of Dogs. And, and Rampage. And Rampage. Rampage. So stay tuned. How come we don't do Truth or Dare? <laughs> Phil's, Phil's favorite movie of the year so far. Because you'll ruin this one with that one. <laughs> Go see. Tr- Listen, if you want to have a fun time with a horror movie, I recommend Truth or Dare. But unfortunately, <laughs> we will not be covering it. Uh, horror movie, new- horror movie news on uh, Popcorn Talk will be covering it. They might even have one of the actors come in. So stay tuned for that. As Marissa mentioned, check out On the Fly Filmmaking for an interview with the sound designers. Mm-hmm. See. Here at Popcorn Talk, we round out the experience, don't yep. we? We cover it all for you. So, And check out, we also, I know we covered 13 hours, so you should check that out because that was the genesis of this relationship that has brought now fame and fortune to both people. Yes, indeed. Speaking of which, uh, a couple of you guys asked, how do I check out some of the older movies? Uh, iTunes does put a limit of 300. We have done more than 300, so all you got to do in that case is Either find us on YouTube or go to our website, popcorntalk.com, find Anatomy, and it has all the episodes. All of them. There's no limit on the website. Yes. <laughs> However, iTunes, there's unfortunately a 300 limit. They never anticipated that we'd be going this many episodes. They thought we'd quit after two. <laughs> well, we are here. <laughs> here we are. we are. So thank you guys as always. We'll see you next time. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Happy Friday. From producers Maria Menunos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network, we would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit popcorntalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of its owners or principals.